Welcome to the American Hardcore Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Blush. In our first episodes, we've spoken about how the hardcore punk scene changed the course of music. Not just the speed and the sound, but the very reason for making music, the intent behind it. For instance, 70s punk spawned the most radical music to date, raging with new ideas like do-it-yourself and all ages, but DIY became lifestyle only after hardcore bands like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys. The original punk bands also embodied sex and drugs and rock and roll excess, but hardcore violently reacted with anti-party bands like Minor Threat and SSD. The best 70s punk had a political intent. The Clash, the Specials, the Rock Against Racism movement. Hardcore took that radicalism to the next level, fueled by fiery frontmen like Jello Biafra, Joey Shithead, Dave Dichter, and this week's guest, Vic Bondi, the force behind the great Chicago band Articles of Faith, the star of the American hardcore film, and so much more. Welcome, Vic Bondi, to the American Hardcore Podcast. Thanks, Stephen. It's good to see you again. Yeah, same here. So I want to start like with a profile of you. I grew up in a military household, so my father was my father was 30 years in the National Security Group of the U.S. Navy. So he was an intelligence officer, and um, he in the 60s, his primary job was to um, track Soviet submarines. And then he did a number of special missions, including some in Vietnam that he didn't talk about even up to the day of his death, uh, but he got medals for him. So there was at one point, uh, uh, we went into the NSA headquarters in Fort Meade, Maryland, one of the most secure facilities on the planet. And um, we went through the doors and they put a Marine with us with an M16, me, my mom, and my sister. We went into this air, this windowless room with blue bunting and a lectern. In comes the Secretary of the Navy. In comes my dad. He says, we want to thank Joseph Bondi for meritorious service to the United States. Pins a medal on his thing and walks out. And to this day, I don't know what he really got the medal for. Dad told me he got the medal for he told me that they devised some method for tracking Soviet submarines so that they always knew where every single Soviet sub was. But, um, you know, for the most part, my father's work was, was on the, it was, is on the QT. And then later on, my dad was the executive officer at NAS Corey Field, which is the intelligence training uh, facility in Pensacola, Florida, where they teach all the electronic warfare guys how to do electronic warfare in aircraft. So um, I grew up in a national security household and a pretty conservative one, as you would imagine, right? Um, although, you know, there were lots about my parents that uh, wouldn't fit the standard, especially today, wouldn't fit the standard conservative rubric. I mean, my, my parents were adamant uh, pro-civil rights and, you know, my father especially serving with so many people of mixed backgrounds. He was, a, he was a very tolerant man and he really detested racism. He detested, he detested Trump before he died. He, he absolutely detested him. Uh, but um, yeah, I grew up in a, I, a military household, just like it sounds like you did too. And, you know, the other thing about that military experience besides, you know, you, you, you grow up under some fairly strict circumstances is you move all the time. So every, 
two to four years, we moved to another place. I think we spent the most amount of time in Pensacola when I was in high school, probably three or four years. Um, and then we spent a lot of time in the DC area because uh, dad was posted to the Pentagon and he was posted to um, Pennsylvania Avenue, which is where the Naval Security Headquarters were. So I grew up around the DC area a lot, which is part of the reason that I became friends with all the DC hardcore guys. My sister, in the heyday of hardcore uh, in DC, my sister was living with my parents. I was already in Chicago, but whenever I would come back on vacation, Tony would take me to the 930 Club, and that's where I saw the Bad Brains the very first time. That's where I met Ian and Tesco and, and John Stab and the rest of the scene there. So you had a band before this uh, called Direct Drive or something? Can you, what was, where's your, where, where's, I guess, is like your connection to punk maybe? Cause so kind of tell us what this is. Well, like. sa sadly, I wasn't born punk, you know, I mean, there was, there was a, there was a time when there was this orthodoxy about hardcore where, you know, you, I think everybody was obscuring their roots in classic rock. I can remember like 81, 82, you couldn't like Neil Young and you couldn't like Bruce Springsteen cause that was so uncool. But I wasn't born punk. Um, I, was, I, I, I was born listening to rock and roll and, and soul music, a lot of soul music, but I'm not a good enough singer to pull it off. And um, uh, I was in, the first band I was in, I was actually in pickup bands in high school in Pensacola. We would go down to the beach and we'd play Who covers. And you know, it's great when you would play on the beach in Pensacola, your strings would oxidize. So by the end of the, end of the show, you'd have like these green strings from the sea air, um, but it wasn't, I, when I went up to, to uh, Illinois, I went to Northern Illinois University uh, for a couple of years before I moved to Chicago. That's where I started Direct Drive. And it was a punk band. We did, we did Blondie covers, we did Sex Pistols covers, we did Clash covers. We did a few originals. We started writing, I started writing originals. They weren't very good. I mean, they were really derivative. Um, you know, I would not, I would not, I would, I don't want to listen to them now. Uh, everybody's got to start somewhere, right? And so I, I started with these clash derivative songs, mid-tempo punk stuff. And then directly, two of us, me and Joe Scuderi, who were the, the guitarist and myself in Direct Drive, we decided that we really wanted to play rock and roll. We really wanted to play punk rock. We were going to move to Chicago because Joe was from Chicago. We're going to move to Chicago, start a band for real, drop out of school. So we did that. And... Um, it was, uh, that's where we met Bill Richmond, also known as Virus X, who's, who was a drummer in Articles of Faith. And that's where we met Dave Shield, who uh, became the bassist in Articles of Faith. And, uh, oh, I guess two or three, two, two, two years or three years after that, Dorian Tajbosh, two years after that, Dorian Tajbosh joined as the last guitarist on AOF because at that point the music was so fast that I couldn't play guitar and sing at the same time. So we needed somebody to pick that up. And then what it, what it opened up for us that we didn't expect was it opened us up the possibility of having three guitars. And so then if we would dial the speed back just a little bit and put a little more dynamism into the music, we could make the three guitar thing work. And so after that, Articles of Faith would alternate uh, in the set between songs where I didn't play guitar and then songs where I did. And, um, and we'd even, at the end, we were even bringing up acoustic guitar on stage because when you have two electrics and one acoustic, you can get a really full dimensional sound. So um, that, was, that was kind of how that happened. But yeah, Direct Drive was the first band that, that I was in that was a band where we actually wrote music. 
and then that became Articles of Faith. Uh, we we had, we started playing in the fall of '81 in Chicago as Direct Drive, uh, and then uh, that winter I went home to D.C. visit my parents, um, and then Tony took me to a Bad Brain show at the beginning of right in January of 1982. I was floored. I was absolutely stunned at what a great band the Bad Brains were. And um, we had already, Articles of Faith had already started experimenting with speed as an aesthetic principle. But man, we, I went back and I'm like, dudes, we have to like go fast. We have to play fast and we need to rebrand re the band. So we kind of ditched the direct drive, mid-tempo clashy stuff. And we embraced what ultimately became the Articles of Faith, hyperspeed, but with a lot of elements drawn from reggae and funk and jazz. Joe was a big jazz player um, that we wove in and out of that thing, and it became that. That became that distinctive sound. Mm -hmm. So at that point, we did evolve away from uh, what what my origins were at and what all of our origins were at. We created that synthetic sound. It was really a combination of everybody's influences. You know, we were all grounded in punk and rock, but you know, Bill was very much into to jazz and funk. Joe was really into experimental music and jazz. Um, Dorian was really into garage rock and Dylan. So I think, and then Dave, Dave liked Dave and I liked a lot of country and western, and so we just managed to fuse all that mix into this synthetic gumbo of hardcore that was Articles of Faith. Yeah, so when you guys get, as you're becoming Articles of Faith, there is there is a hardcore scene in Chicago, so-called First Generation, which is based around this club called Oz, the Chicago compilation, and there's this band, The Effigies, who, you know, is kind of like of a different ilk than you. So. They were the top dogs. Um, so the Oz was a floating club when I first started when I first started going into Chicago, when I was still at an NIU in DeKalb, DeKalb is about 75 miles west of, of uh, Chicago. We used to go in on the weekends and go to bars and meet girls and stuff. And um, when, I, when I first started going in, Oz was this floating club. It's kind of an underground club because it kept getting busted. So it moved from place to place and, and it, was kind of a, a, it was kind of a secret, right? And then you'd get an invitation or somebody would hear about it and then everybody would show up at Oz. And um, yeah, I saw the effigies the first time at one of those pickup clubs, probably in 81. They were phenomenal. They were just an amazing band. I, um, I had never really, I had never really heard that type of guitar sound. Earl, uh, Earl's guitar sound was just this sweeping, heavy, it was great and the band looked fucking tough and um i was really enamored of the effigies that first generation was the effigies naked ray gun da um th there was a great unheralded band from back then called dv8 uh, the original drummer for dv8 eric spicer ended up in naked ray gun and um you know a direct drive did not fit into that scene so when we came in especially when we were still under the influence of the clash and Bruce Springsteen, and we were still halfway between hardcore and rock. Um, you know, we were, we were kind of rejected by those guys. It, it, it really kind of broke my heart a little bit. 
because um, I was I was such a big Effigies fan. They, uh, I also, I was enamored not only of the style of the Clash but the message of the Clash. So I, I had been studying political science and history, and um, so we put a we put a left wing political veneer on pretty much everything we were doing too. So uh, and and that was part of our original gestalt. The effigies. I remember once um, the effigies played some show, and um, they were selling their single body bag. And I'm like, "Oh man, I, I bought a single." And I went over to John. And I'm like, "John, will you sign my single for me?" And he did, and he gave it back to me. And I got it home with it. And I looked in the inner sleeve of what he written, and he written, "Biafra punks, fuck off." And I was, I was really, I was kind of crushed by it. Um, yeah, you know, I was only 20 years old, so it, it was. You know, it, 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 yeah, it was a bad moment. I mean, because we had already, at that point, we'd already met Biafra and, and we were moving and starting to move into those circles too. But like, it was, it was kind of a bummer. Right. And, and just for people who don't know, that guy actually became like a, uh, the singer, John, John Kesey became a, 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 a prosecutor the last I had heard. Yeah. Yeah. He was a, he was a prosecutor for the state of Illinois. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, so give, give him props for getting a law degree, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> so the start of Articles of Faith. Now, I, I vaguely know what the Articles of Faith are. I mean, that has to do with the Mormon Church. And, but we're, what, what was, you know, I'm sure, obviously that's ironic, but kind of talk about like what Articles of Faith, the name and the whole start of why you were Articles of Faith. It, it, there wasn't a lot of science or thought put into it, Steve. I mean, we were like, we, we had a song called Articles of Faith. It was a pretty good song. And um, when, we were, when we were wanting to drop the direct drive moniker because we were going in a new direction, we're like, what do we call the new band? And that song and that, that thing sounded cool, right? So it was just a matter that Articles of Faith sounded cool. We actually didn't know anything about the Mormon Articles of Faith. None of us were Mormon. So it wasn't in reaction to anything. Uh, but it sounded cool, and in, in retrospect, it was a good choice because it, it tapped into kind of, you know, the band had a um, kind of proto-emo feel to it. You know, a lot of our songs, if they, were, if they were political, they were very personal too, right? Like, I mean, a song like Five O'Clock, it's much more about me getting up at 4 a.m. to go to work, which I actually used to do, than it, it, it is, a, 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 you know, political. None of our songs... We never were a fuck Reagan band. We never, we never were polemical. I mean, we, MD, MDC did such a good job with that. They didn't need anybody else to do that. We were always trying to do the, the personal is the political. You know, what does it mean when you get up at 4 a.m. every morning and have to go clean toilets like I did for rich people? You know, that, that was our politics. It, it was like, fuck you. I'm cleaning your shit. Fuck you, right? That was, that was our politics. And... Um, Articles of Faith, in retrospect, that kind of the sort of incumbent spirituality of that term sort of fit the incumbent spirituality of the band because the band had a fair amount of that going on with it. I don't know that we thought a lot about it, but in retrospect, it seems like it was there. Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote down in my notes something that's like almost like a mathematical formula or something like on a scientific periodic charts, but it says... AOF, um, oh, it's a, MT is minor threat and dead Kennedy's is DK, right? So 
my notes say AOF equal MT plus DK. <laughs> yeah, that's actually right. I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and it's funny because I think we probably drew our fan base from both sides of that proposition, right? Um, uh, you know, we, we got along really, we got, we got along really well with actually both sides of that perimeter because not a lot of bands did, but, um, you know, both of those bands were friends of, of mine and actually Ian and, 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 uh, Biafra have been my friends for 40 years. So, uh, you know, we definitely fit right into that mix. That's a good, good proposition. Mm -hmm. An important player in your development is Bob Wold, who of course represented the big band in Minneapolis and you were even on his label. I was at a show with you in, with no trend uh, somewhere, you know, a couple nights of the three of the bands. So I recognize like the power of like this guy, you know, I mean, he's more than like, a, you know, this was kind of like Husker Du was a really important thing and you were kind of connected into this Midwest, you know, hardcore thing, which was very powerful at the time. I mean, so. Well, it was, the thing was when hardcore started, you know, the, the, scene, the scene that was f formidable from the get-go, and the earliest one really was that SoCal scene that was built around Black Flag. DOA also, I mean, DOA doesn't get enough credit for where they belong in this spectrum, but DOA and Black Flag were the first two bands to really tour nationally. And they took that hardcore do-it-yourself ethos out. The very first tour Articles of Faith ever went on was using Black Flag and um, MDC's tour book. So there was... You, you remember this, Stephen, because you were managing No Trend, but it used to be that you would get these little tour books and they were, they were a list of names and phone numbers in different cities. And, you know, they were passed on from band to band, right? So, so uh, DOA and Black Flag were the trailblazers. They were the ones that were passing those names around. And um, then Hooskers were another band that, you know, they spent uh, 320 days on the road a year, right? So they would also update that black book that you had. Dead Kennedys were another one. So there was this, this network that was created, but there was, there was a SoCal thing. It was the first one out of the gate. It was a big deal. It became bigger and bigger as the 80s went on. There was an East Coast thing that was really centered on DC with Boston and New York coming up kind of the last guy behind. And New York only coming up because the Bad Brains moved from DC there to New York for a brief period and they kind of sparked that whole scene. Um, but the, the Midwest was kind of left, it was the barons. <laughs> we, were, we were the dead industrial atmosphere. And you know, there, was, there was a handful of bands and being punk in the Midwest also in those days or being hardcore in the Midwest, you take, took a fair amount of shit. When I shaved my head and started walking around in my punk outfit or my leather jacket, um, I would often get into it with frat boys, right? So, um, so it was not, it was not, it was not a tolerant culture in the Midwest. It did not tolerate diversity well. Uh, we actually ended up on the Phil Donahue show talking about this because uh, the housewives were appalled. And uh, um, so the bands kind of gathered together. The Hooskers were the big band in in Minneapolis. They weren't the only one. There was was man size action. There was the replacements, which really weren't a hardcore band, but they were really part of that. There was Soul Asylum, which started as Loud Fast Rules. And then there were, there were um, a handful of other bands in each city in the Midwest. So we were in Chicago. 
and there was Decoison in Milwaukee. There was the Zero Boys in Indianapolis, and Paul Mahern from the Indian from the Zero Boys was uh, one of these guys who was central to the scene because he was putting out records by other bands. He put out our first music that was actually on vinyl. There was the Necros and the Toxic Reasons in Ohio. There was Negative Approach in, in the Crucifix, Crucifix fantastic band in Michigan. So there was, there, was, there was, you know, this small circle of bands in the Midwest and they were under a fair amount of pressure. I mean, because the Midwest was a lot more conservative than the coasts and really didn't abide that level of nonconformity very well. Mm -hmm. uh, we got rousted by cops and I mean, they did in Ca California too, but you know, was, and that's one of the reasons Oz was an underground club. It just, that and the fact that the mob owned all the regular clubs in Chicago and it took a while for the regular clubs to open up. I think by the time, I mean, we did Articles of Faith uh, set up our own shows. I think No Trend played one of these shows. We, we used to rent out this place called the Central American Social Club. Yeah. We would set those shows up. We, we'd rent the hall from these Guatemalan guys and then we would go get the sound system. We'd set up the sound system. We set up the lights. No alcohol was served. It was a, um, and it was great. I mean, those shows were by the by the time we were done, those shows were bigger than the shows in the clubs. Um, mm -hmm. They were drawing more people. Uh, and um, oh, also talk about how uh, Dead Kennedys played into like, like whoever opened for their shows were the local bands and. You know, there was something incredibly powerful about that at the time, not just from the first shows I was seeing, but like with No Trend, we were off on a whole bunch of those shows. It was like, you know, you, you met, like, you saw Decroitson, or you saw, there was some band in Kansas City we saw that was really good. Or, and OTA, uh, you know, yeah, they were from Norman, Oklahoma. I don't know uh, Kansas City, yeah. Yeah, whatever. But there was a bunch of, like, I just remember, like, just the power of, like, um forcing clubs to book SSD or the butthole surfers or, you know, whatever, you know, uh, that whole, or, and, or uh, just the power of the, um, the sense of underground, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at, that a lot of the bands were, were trying to deliver. It was more than music. Well, they were, there were, there were guys, I think, so the politics of, of the original hardcore movement were all over the map. So one of the things is oftentimes people will say, oh, it was really a left wing, it was an anti-Reagan thing. That's actually not true. Um, there was a big piece of that. So definitely anti-Reagan. There was the fantastic 1984 Rock Against Reagan concert on the mall in DC that I was at, where uh, was uh, Dead Kennedys were headliners. I think Fear played though too. He did. And Fear was not a left wing band, man. And, uh, but uh, I'll never forget it because Biafra's on stage and he looks up the, the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument at night, the top looks like a Klansman's helmet and has these two red lights in the top of it. And, and Biafra looks up and he goes, look up there, it's the great Klansman in the sky. And, and I'll never forget the Klansman in the sky remark from him from that stage. But you, know, you had guys like, like Biafra and Bob and Paul Mayhern and, and Greg Ginn, bless his heart, really, I mean, these guys, these guys wanted to build a movement. So the one unifying thing across the politics was everybody hated the way the music industry was run at that time. Because, you, I mean, the biggest band in the country was Styx. So you had, like, god-awful prog rock and crap, Pablo Cruz. 
Fleetwood Mac. I mean, this stuff was appalling, right? Nobody wanted to listen to this shit. And yet it was making millions of dollars. And everything was about, do you have a manager? Do you have a booking agent? You know, uh, and, and these ridiculous advances that, that the record labels would give bands and then they would bleed them dry for their money. The whole, the whole music industry was a cesspool of capitalist annihilation. So there was a strong feeling like that unified the left and the right across the, 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 the hardcore scene was that we need to change that. If nothing else, we need to change that. And so that's why so many bands started their own label. You know, that's, I mean, Greg, again, with SSD and Biafra with Alternative Tentacles and Ian with Discord, Articles of Faith started our own label called Wasteland that didn't last very long. But Bob had, um, Bob had his label, Reflex, which we did the first Articles of Faith record on. So that's give, that's give thanks, correct? That's give thanks, yeah. And, and so there was this sense like, we're not going to put up with this rock star bullshit or any of this, you know, pay to play crap in bars, any of this stuff. We're going to just, we're going to take over this music industry and we're going to do it from the ground, ground up. And to some extent that actually happened, right? So even after the initial um, burst of hardcore faded around 85, 86, what happened after that was a lot of people who had been in that scene moved into record industry spots. So my friend, Joe Lenardi, she went on to work at Reprise Records and she was 30 years in the music industry as an A&R person. And that happened a lot. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was as, as the graduates of that hardcore scene moved into the music industry, they started to move, shift the calculus of what that music should be away from Fleetwood Mac and towards what ultimately became the Nirvana moment, right? So, you know, the Hooskers went to a major, uh, Soul Asylum went to a major, you had the rise in the late 80s of college rock, which was kind of guitar heavy or guitar heavier. You had bands like the Pixies um, that were starting to bring a lot of guitar into space. You know, Fort Apache Studio in Boston. At that point, I had moved to Boston in the late 80s and um, I had started Jones Very. And um, Jones Very recorded at Fort Apache, but so did Throwing Muses, um, Pixies. Uh, Big Dipper, uh, who else? I mean, there was, a, there was a dozen college rock bands that recorded at Fort Apache. So the college rock thing was, still had a foot halfway in the hardcore world. And it was kind of the way station on the way to the great grunge explosion that happened in 92, 93. And, and so, and then ultimately that moment, that 90, 93, 93 to 94 explode, last great explosion of really good rock and roll in the rock scene was driven in part by all the graduates of that scene who had taken jobs in the music industry and were helping promote Nirvana, Soundgarden, um, Rage Against the Machine, you know, these, these, and all of those bands definitely had a, a foot in hardcore. I mean, in, 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 you know, in the case of Nirvana, Dave Grohl had played in Scream in DC and, and Tom Morello from Libertyville, Illinois had gone to Naked Ray Gun shows and he was a huge fan of Articles of Faith. That's how I met Tom was because of my Articles of Faith connection. So um, that was definitely, that was definitely the natural progression of that. In the end, it really wasn't the hardcore ethos though that took over the music industry 
because the business practices stay the same. It's still a capitalist cesspool, but the aesthetic definitely made its way into the mainstream of the music industry. And in some ways, some of the principles did too. So again, with Rage Against the Machine, it's a great example. There's, there is that through line from the clash to the dead Kennedys to Rage Against the Machine in terms of the way in which those politics express themselves. So um, some aspects of those governing principles behind hardcore did emerge in the 90s as part of the music industry. But you know, like everything else that ends up in a capitalist endeavor, that stuff was dumped later on and you know what do we have today in in mainstream music industry taylor swift surprisingly political at times or lady gaga but i mean it's definitely not rock and roll <laughs> yeah so you know going back you're talking about uh college rock and jones very so you're you're you have your foot in academia you know college rock i was actually rock, i was actually very Talk yeah. about that whole kind of like uh, experience, you know. I was in I was in graduate school when I formed Jones Very. So I, I uh, in eighty five or eighty one thing about Articles of Faith was Articles of Faith probably could have been a much bigger band than we were, but we never we never put the effort in. So when one of the reasons Husker Du became a huge band besides the fact that they were incredibly talented, both Bob and Grant and Greg. The, one of the reasons that they became so big was because they were on the road 300 days a year. They lived it. One of the reasons Soul Asylum became, you know, they had a massive hit and they were a huge band and Dave Perner dated Winona Ryder. One of the reasons that happened was because that band was on the road 300 days a year, right? So in order to make this work, if you're going to be a professional musician, Youngsters, young people listening to this podcast, you want to be a professional musician, hit the road and do not go off of it until you're famous, right? That's the way you do it. That is how you do it. Yeah. And, and it's not just because people need the constant exposure. It's because as a musician, you will not get good chops. You will never get good chops woodshedding in your house by yourself because you have to play with other people. So you can get good at your instrument, but you won't be good at playing music. Then you need to play the shit out of it as a band together to get good at that. But the real magic is playing in front of people because you have to learn how to surf that vibe. And if you don't learn how to surf that vibe, you will never be good at music. And, and the reason that, that Hooskers became big and Solus, they put in the effort. Articles of Faith never did. We, we never toured enough. And we always kept finding reasons not to. Uh, I went back to... Uh, I, I, I mean, I dropped out of college to play in Articles of Faith. I did it for two years. And in those two years, I was working construction, uh, not really construction. I was working in a rehab crew. And um, we would, we would, you know, not, we'd go into these old apartment buildings in Chicago and we'd rip everything down to the lathe and then we'd rebuild the apartment. And um, it was good work, but it was also hard work. And I remember I'm hauling a hundred pound sheet of drywall up four flights of stairs at six in the morning one day. And I'm like, why am I doing this, man? Like, I, I'm, I'm going to be a broken man when I'm 40. So I, I uh, went back to school. And once I went back to school, it was very hard to juggle articles of faith and being in school because you couldn't go on tour all the time. And then we're like, oh, it's okay. We'll tour in the summertime. We'll tour in, in winter break. But then in summertime, Joe was like, no, I'm going to go off to Europe with my girlfriend. And 
we never we never managed to do it. So I mean, we did a we did a handful of national tours, maybe six national tours. We never we never did what what Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys and DOA and Husker Dude did, which is get in a van and drive it until it falls apart and play every fucking night. We didn't do it. So by '85, we weren't going to go anywhere. And at that point, I'm like, well, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to go to graduate school. So I went to grad school. And I was in grad school for a couple of years in, in Boston. I went to BU. And then I, I got done with my um, qualifying exams for my doctorate. And I'm like, so once you pass your qualifying exams, your, it, your, your lifestyle opens up a lot. Because now all you're doing is you're working on your dissertation, which is a super time flexible thing. And so I'm like, I can get back in a band now. So that's when I, I formed Jones Very. And so Jones Very started playing in Boston. We used to open up all the time for Slapshot, which was, which was really an odd pairing. <clears throat> the reason we did it was because a couple of the guys in Slapshot, Steve Rustine and uh, Mark McKay, the drummer, Steve Rustine was one of the guitarists. They really liked Jones Very. And so they, they kept inviting us to open up for him. The hardcore fans of Slapshot did not like Jones Ferry. So it was always this really odd pairing. I mean, we would, we would get booed sometimes. Um, Jones Ferry had a very experimental ethos. The bass player in Jones Ferry, who in retrospect was really the heart and soul of that band, was Jeff Goddard. And Jeff was a jazz player at the Berklee College of Music. And that's why those Jones Ferry songs have all these lyrical bass bass runs really in a lot of ways he's the soloist in Jones Very Jeff is and I'm just playing you know staccato guitar behind it uh, but but Steve Steve and um, Mark loved Jones Very so they would invite us to to play and then we would go up on stage without a set list and we might cover Sly Stone or we might we might jam on one note for 15 minutes uh, depending upon our mood because at that time even though college rock was exploding at that time I thought college rock was kind of a commodity, and um, I I didn't want to play like that. I wanted I wanted something more freestyle. Jeff had turned me on to Coltrane and to Miles Davis, and um, actually some of the solos on those Jones Very records are lifted out of. I lifted two or three melodic passages out of what Coltrane was doing on the sax, and I'd throw them in. But um, I wanted to do something more freestyle, more experimental. College rock bands would go on stage every night and play the same set list over and over again, you know, so it had become this kind of dismal commodity. And I didn't, I didn't want to be a dismal commodity. I wanted to be, I didn't care if I was the worst band one night when you came to see us. What I wanted to be was the greatest band you had ever seen on other nights, right? So I was willing to risk being a bad band in order to be the best band you'd ever seen, right? because we would catch the spirit. Again, it depended upon the audience and it would depend upon how the vibe was going. But I think our approach to that was we wanted to feel that vibe, but it, it comported badly with Slapshot expectations. Cause you know, I mean, Choke was up there with that hockey stick, man. I mean, that's some pretty aggressive shit for yeah. a band like Jones Ferry to play transcendental post-punk rock and roll. Yeah. You know, but it with didn't really lyrical passages, I just. But it didn't really fit that kind of like post-REM kind of thing that you're describing, that college rock. 
Well, it was a lot. It was actually Jones Very was a much tougher edge band than that, right? Like, right, yeah. so again, it was it, it. Jones Very had a lot of toughness to it as a band. We did introduce, like I said, because of Jeff, we introduced a certain amount of melodicism and lyricality um, to what we were doing that was unusual for that time, right? Uh, but on the other hand, it was still it was still my voice, which is not a very comforting voice to hear, right? It it, it takes some it's an acquired taste, right? And um, so if you, if you weren't up for, uh, some reviewers have called it Sergeant Rock or whatever, you know, like they're, they're usually pretty derogatory about the gruffness of my voice, but that's still the same voice in Jones Vary. So it's not, it's not exactly a pretty, it's not, it's not Michael Stipe, you know? <laughs> so I don't know how well we fit into the whole college. We didn't really fit into, the weird thing about Jones Vary is it's a much bigger band now than it was in its day. Because in its day, we didn't fit into the hardcore scene and we didn't fit into the rock and roll, I mean, the, the college rock scene. We were right. kind of between it. And in, in retrospect, it has huge fans. Like Ryan Adams is a big fan of, of Jones Ferry, but like um, uh, in, its, in its moment, and again, probably because Jones Ferry, like Articles of Faith, um, it did some things musically that were challenging and new. And so it gets some credit for that. And mm -hmm. uh, um, so that's one, one of the reasons Jones Vary, and Jones Vary is interesting. Jones Vary has an independent fan base apart from Articles of Faith, which is kind of fascinating to me. Um, and, a, and a lot more women like Jones Vary than, uh, I mean, Articles of Faith is, typically has a very strong male fan base, as does Dead Ending. Um, but uh, um, Jones Vary has a lot of women like that band, so that's cool. Mm -hmm. My sister liked it. It's her favorite band that I've been in. So there you go. That, that speaks. Um, so you have this interesting world of academia and the tech world and the punk world. Um, there's a question in there somewhere, but you know, just kind of like how you- How did, how did you get there? So I went, I, went, I, I, went to, I went to BU in 85. I got my doctorate in history in um, 92. Why did I get a doctorate in history? Um, you know, when you, when we were, when we were, when dad was stationed in the DC area, we would, of course, in those days, you know, it's fascinating, Stephen, when you, after the January 6th thing where the, the, the Congress was stormed, when I was a boy in the DC area, you could actually walk up those steps and just go into Congress. You could go upstairs and sit in the House of Representatives. It was not locked down. Correct. You know, it was, it was, it was, all, all the it. monuments were like that. Yeah. You, you could even, it, you couldn't do that at the white house, but you, it was easy to get an appointment to do the tour of the white house and they did it all the time. Right. So you, you the, the, the city wasn't locked down the way it is now. And there weren't, there weren't gates and fences everywhere and fucking concrete barriers. Um, so, you know, you, when you grow up in the DC area, there's a lot of history there. Um, there was a, my father had, um, he had these friends that had uh, adopted him. When my dad first went to his first military posting in 1957 or 56, had been in the D.C. area, and he had been adopted by this family, the Kettlers and Buzz Kettler. He had been part of the Roosevelt administration. He had built the Pan American Highway. He was this John Houston type of adventurous character, and his wife was this fine, genteel, Washington, gentry. Um, I mean, there was, you, because you, you spent a lot of time in DC, you know, there was, 
there was a culture in DC in the late 50s and 60s that was really a derivation of everything that Roosevelt had brought to that city in the 1930s. And it was, it was service oriented, it was erudite, it was well educated, it was invested in notions of history and law. This kind of federal mindset that permeated Washington DC, you still see it. You know, you, if, you, if you just take your bike and ride through DC, you'll see all these buildings that were built by the CCC and the WPA, Rock Creek Park, that whole park was a WPA project, right? And uh, you'll see in the stones, 1933, WPA, right? Or, you know, uh, and that federal architecture, it was such a, that federal mindset was deeply invested in notions of law and order and the history of the United States. And it permeated me when I was a kid. The other thing was I was pretty good at it. So there were lots of things I wasn't good at. I wasn't good at mathematics. Um, so since I wasn't good at math, but I was good at history, you know, I, I had six different majors in, in my, my six, seven year career at college. I kept dropping in and out and changing majors and losing credits. I started as an architecture major. I ended up as a historian. But um, I chose history because in some ways I was invested in it from my youth, but also I was good at it. And it was easy for me. It was easy. So on the, on the principle of conservation of energy, I wasn't going to waste my time trying to do something I wasn't good at right? I was going to work on it. So I got my doctorate in 92. And I taught at the University of New Hampshire. And, um, and then I, I, when I was teaching up at um, UNH, I actually, I lived up there for a while, but I didn't like living in New Hampshire. I moved back to Boston. I used to commute up. I would teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I teach all my classes, four classes that day. I had this great Vietnam War survey class that I used to teach. Uh, it was terrific. Um, 300, 400 people in this auditorium. A lot of them were ROTC guys. And they were, you know, <laughs> when I would suggest to them that Rambo was a sadomasochistic gay movie, their heads would just explode, man. <laughs> I, I don't know if you, you know, that second in, in Rambo too, there's that scene where, where Rambo's strapped. He's literally strapped on a bed, like a bed frame. And they're jolting him with electricity. And he's, He's basically fucking orgasming. And I'm like, you know, and then there's that scene where, where Stallone's pulling out and he's wiping up his knife and you can look at the veins bulging in his arm. And I used to, I used to ask the women in my class, I said, but tell me how that makes you feel. And, you know, this is, it's a little before I, I wouldn't ask that question today, but you know, they would, they would say things like, well, it's pretty sexy. And then the guys are like, no, it's not. No, it's not. And I'm like, oh yeah, it is. You know, man, to watch like, to watch the homophobia erupt in that class when I would suggest stuff like that, or when I would just go through, you know, the sheer the sheer statistics on the devastation the Americans visited to Vietnam, and watch people's heads explode because that wasn't the mythology they were given about that war, right? Um, but I, I taught up at, at uh, UNH. I didn't have tenure. You know, tenure is like the the, the gold ring for academics, that's what you work towards because it means you have this kind of job that you can never be removed from and secure. And, uh, I didn't have tenure coming out the gate with my doctorate. And so I started writing some books. So I, I wrote these books on the side to generate some income for myself because I wasn't making very much money either as adjunct professors of history don't make anything like a, 
a regular professor of history. I was making about 24, 25 grand a year, not, not very much. And um, so I started writing books. So I wrote four books for this company called Manly uh, from South Carolina. And they were a reference series called American Decades. And um, they're in a lot of libraries. You can still get, you can buy them on Amazon. And um, those books brought me to the attention of Microsoft. So Microsoft in 95, had just started Encarta Encyclopedia. It was the first virtual encyclopedia. Uh, it was an encyclopedia on a disc, you know? So the old days, before computers, people used to sell books, encyclopedia books door to door, Encyclopedia Britannica or World Book. You, you, you're nodding because you had them when you were a kid, right? Mm -hmm. and, what they and they were very expensive. So typically what would happen is a door to door salesman would come, they'd sell you this book, they say, you can buy it on the installment plan. It's only $20 a month. We'll send you a volume a month, right? S starting with A, you know? And that's what people did. But in Carta, um, it used the disc. And uh, it was the first disc-based, the first CD-ROM-based. It's like, actually, sorry, 94, 95, it was on uh, floppy disks. Yeah, that's what I remember. Uh, fact, actually, I think the first, the first couple of Encartas that I shipped um, I think probably until 98, they were all floppy disk based. It was 98 was the first one where we did the split CD. I can't remember now. But um, it, Microsoft's Encarta had a project that they were going to do called Millennium. They were looking at 1999 and the switch over in the Millennium. And what they wanted to do was a CD based ROM history product that would focus on the history of the 20th century. And so they asked my colleague, Jim Cullen, at uh, the University of New Hampshire, they said, do you know anybody who has an encyclopedic knowledge of the 20th century? And Jim's like, well, my buddy Vic just wrote an encyclopedia about this. Yeah. And I had, because that's what American Decades was. It was an encyclopedia series. And so uh, I started consulting with Microsoft on that project. I went out, uh, came out here to Seattle in um, 1995 in the summer of 1995 4th of july actually i came out with pat mahoney the guitarist from um uh alloy which was the band i was in after jones very with uh, alloy was me pat and um colin and uh, roger from dag nasty and uh yeah that was a good record i remember that yeah th we did we did three records and the that was a great band that was actually at the first alloy tour of europe was the best tour I've ever played in my life. It was amazing, amazing tour. But um, Pat came out with me because we were going to go hiking the mountains out here. Um, so, and uh, I went and I started consulting with Microsoft on the Millennium Project. I went back to Boston and uh, I got a call from Paul Shustak, the program manager for that. And he's like, well, Vic, I got good news and I got bad news for you. I, I, I mean, I was absolutely floored when I came out here and started, well, I didn't know anything about computers. I had written my dissertation on an IBM PC clone, um, monochromatic screen, right? It was basically a word processor. I didn't know, I didn't know how to do anything computer-wise on it. It was just a word processor for me. Came out here and then I'm in the, in the teeth of the most fantastic software company on the planet and I meet brilliant, brilliant people from really diverse backgrounds. Um, museum curators, this program manager, Jim Oker, fantastic guy. Jim Cox, 
who was a, a marketing genius that I met, and he's still a brilliant guy. And, and so many of the developers that I met here, I'd never met develop. I didn't know what computer development was. So to meet guys who write code, you know, it was just Bruce Jones and and um, uh, Mark Truluck. These guys were brilliant. David Jeske, my friend David Jeske, easily one of the smartest men I've ever met in my life, uh, developer. To meet these people, and it was just, my mind was blown. So I went back to Boston. Paul calls me up and he's, he's saying, um, well, I got good news and bad news for you. I'm like, well, give me the bad news first. He goes, the bad news is they're canceling the project. I'm like, oh, that sucks. I'm like, well, what's the good news? The good news is they want you to come out and interview at Microsoft. And at that time, Microsoft had this, um, they had a really, so one thing about Microsoft in 1995, this is when Windows 95 first came out and they were the biggest software company on the planet. They still only had about 40,000 employees, right? So it was a relatively small com company and there was a reason for that. The first reason was there weren't that many computer science graduates coming out of colleges. And so almost everybody that I was working in with at Microsoft, developer or non-developer, didn't have a CS degree. They were guys who, I mean, Geo Gilmet, another brilliant developer that I worked with a lot. Geo hadn't even graduated, he didn't even went to college. He was just a high school hacker that was hired by Microsoft. They were hiring people on the basis of intellectual firepower and the assumption was they could teach you what you needed to know. And so they had a, 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 they had a really powerful training program that they would put you through uh, once you were hired. And they had a very high hiring bar. So I interviewed with 14 people in those days, um, if any of the 14 had given me a no hire, I would not have been hired. All hires had to be unanimous. And it, it, was, it was an astonishing, it was an astonishing process. You know, you went, you went through this, uh, it, was, it was fantastic because what it meant on the other side of that hiring process is that everybody that you worked with was absolutely top flight. They were brilliant. And actually, once you were in, you went and had dinner with Bill Gates. So um, in those days, they would, um, they would take about 20 of you and you go to the Columbia Club here in Seattle and you have a, a dinner with Bill and he would talk to you and get to know you. And Bill knew everybody. And Bill, Bill, Bill was a, another kind of astonishing person. I've, I've never met anybody like him in my life. I mean, everybody's going to tell you that. Um, but, but that was a really great company to work with in those days. And I, I was... I was flabbergasted to have that left turn happen in my life. I mean, I, I wasn't expecting it. I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about computers then. So once I was hired, um, it was great. I went through all of these classes in software lifecycle development, precision questioning. Precision questioning was uh, an old Microsoft program. It was easily the best class I've ever taken in my professional career. Precision questioning taught you how to manage projects by being exact and precise in terms of your management of the various components and into the way in which you interrogated the progress of the project. And it's, it's worked for me for 30 years, right? It's, it, it was just an amazing class. And there wasn't, a, I, can't, I can't even remember all the axioms of it, but I would just say the big piece was when you're talking to people about what they do and how they do it, if they cannot respond to you with exactitude and specificity, then they don't know what they're doing. 
today we see kind of a, a mix of like um, the tech world and activism, which didn't really, ex I don't think it existed then, but maybe you have a good idea. Maybe you could discuss that as somebody who's been on the inside and, and all that kind of stuff. Sure, I can. I mean, I can give you a little bit of insight into the, the culture of technology, which has changed a lot, right? So again, when I started in 95, the, the, the raw infrastructure wasn't there for technology, right? So remember, Microsoft isn't the only game in town. There's Oracle, there's Apple. Um, so there are other software. There's Wang, which is gone now. There's Digital, which is gone now. There was Netscape, which is also gone now. These these, uh, but there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough software engineering skills deeply embedded in universities to create a genuine software culture. When I started, it was a very synthetic culture. It was a culture that was derived from software engineering, mechanical engineering. There was a load of counterculture in there, man. There was a lot of LSD graduates who had, especially at Apple, folks who had who had you know come from some very countercultural position freakers and breakers right there was this whole test discipline that doesn't exist anymore that was all freakers and breakers um so it was a it was it was a synthetic culture an amalgam of a lot of different types of ideas including rock and roll that made its way and dyi that made its way into that but it, over the next 25 years of my career in software you saw that straighten out. So obviously supply and demand, it was such a remunerative industry that you know, everybody jumped in and became a coder. Every, there, were, there, are now, there are now computer science programs at community colleges everywhere and in high schools everywhere now. So there's, there's, there's no, Microsoft doesn't have the same hiring practices either anymore. So the, the, the um, the culture has changed. It's become more orthodox. There is a set of principles that you learn about computer science programming now. There was this really god-awful moment in the late 90s where Stanford was cranking out these MBAs wearing khaki pants, and these guys would end up in all the major corporations offering the most orthodox and banal and pedestrian solutions for complicated business problems. I mean, there were I've never met so many stupid people with MBAs in my life. Um, there, I mean, there's a lot of brilliant people that I've met with MBAs too, but that, the, that is the most overrated degree in the planet, frankly, a master in business administration. It's, that's a totally bogus and bullshit degree. But uh, we were getting, for a while, I mean, part of the problem with Balmer's version of Microsoft was it was filled with guys like that and they weren't good at managing software because they, they didn't think about software, they thought about stock. Um, so the culture has changed enormously. One of the problems with the tech industry today is that the, the skill set is very narrow. You do not have a lot of guys writing code who are well-versed in history or literature. You, you I mean, to, to encounter a guy writing code who's read Tolstoy or Hawthorne, you're not gonna find them. They, maybe they've read William Gibson, but they haven't read Dostoevsky or Melville, right? So the cultural points of reference in, in, in software right now are very narrow. 
They're very male. It's a real big problem. They're very male. They're very white. It's changing. It's actually changed in the last five years a fair amount because what's happened is American software has, has, has skimmed the cream of developers off from India and China. So, I mean, Microsoft is led by an, an Indian now. And so is Google, right? Uh, or of Indian descent. So they've, we've skimmed off the, the really talented engineers from these other countries. But again, the, the culture is not, it's not that federalist culture that I was talking about that you used to see in DC. That, was, that culture was built around history and laws, disciplines. This culture is built around logic because you can't write code without logic. Uh, it's built around logic, but it's a very, it's, it's a binary based logic. So it's not, it's not the, it's, it's the early Wittgenstein, not the late Wittgenstein. It's not pragmatics. It's, it's a very atomistic, hyper empirical way of looking at the world. And this, this hyper empiricism does nobody any good, frankly, because it's not human enough. So the, the, the problem- my, my favorite one in, in terms of that was when they pulled ska music off of, of uh, a bunch of the big search sites because that had not had white supremacist connotations. I, you know, I, yeah. they're, 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 listen, they, they do, the software industries, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, they do employ humanities people, but they employ them as gig workers at very low rates of pay and they have no influence, right? Um, Amazon is maybe the one company where that's not actually the case, which is very interesting because it's the one that's the most successful right now. But, you know, besides the fact that um, Mark Zuckerberg is a sociopath, the problem with software right now is the narrowness of experience that is brought to the table by the people who are doing work. And what you saw with social media in the last four years with Trump it's a very McLuhan-esque thing. You know, when, when, when I first started Microsoft, Bill Gates did this famous memo, he called it the internet tsunami. And he said, you know, general user interface, what we're talking through right now, general user interface is gonna sweep the world through the internet and Microsoft needs to be able to compete in this space. And he totally shifted the company away from operating system bias to a internet-based bias with that memo. But he talked a lot in those days about the democratization of knowledge. Uh, I can remember him talking about Singapore in, in some meeting where he was talking about, he had just come back from Singapore and he was talking about how knowledge was going to be democratized. That the gatekeepers, you know, when you and I were growing up, there were three networks on TV and they controlled all the news. So there was a kind of, there was a, there was a opinion had very limited spectrum. And Bill talked about democratization of knowledge means those gatekeepers are gonna be gone. Everyone's going to be free to express an opinion. And, it, and it's true. And on social media, you see this more than anywhere. But the problem with that is the original formulation of democracy in the early enlightenment, the one that the founding fathers embraced was this democracy as a concept was always paired with responsibility. So individual responsibility was the only way in which democracy would work well. Democracy means, just like punk rock means, you can say anything you want. Punk rock means you can say anything you want, but you have the individual autonomy and sense of responsibility not to. 
So there are many things that are better left unsaid. And you don't cry fire in a crowded movie theater. And you don't use the N-word because it's fucking offensive, right? And so you have the good sense not to say anything, even though you can say anything. But social media does not have the pairing of responsibility with that democratization of knowledge. So what you're seeing now in the wake of Trump is you've, you've democratized information, you've democratized knowledge, you've democratized free expression, but you don't have the corollary sense of responsibility that, I mean, you, you don't get freedom unless individuals exercise their freedom responsibility and they, they, they operate with a certain amount of self-discipline and collective um, goodwill. They have to have a broader social outlook. If you don't have those things together, then democracy becomes the mob that the founding fathers were afraid it was, right? And democracy declines into authoritarianism as it did in the French Revolution. And, and, you know, you saw that when they stormed the Capitol. That was a fucking mob. That was the type of classic mob in Adams and Jefferson's concept that they never wanted the United States to disintegrate into. And it's a, it's a side effect of this democratization of knowledge that, and, and information that we've had through social media. And now, at the, on the other side of that, you can see Jack Dorsey kicking off Trump and now all these panels that Zuckerberg, now they're starting to go, well, maybe we need to exercise responsible self-expression and not just freeform self-expression, right? Maybe now we need to see, we need to build a broader social consciousness and a construct here that enables society to move forward collectively and not just individually. So you're seeing that, that peace, that balance, democracy and responsibility have always been the balance. Democracy has been the, I mean, you, you can't, Trumpism is democratic. It is a genuine grassroots expression of incredible stupidity, but it's, it's a genuine expression of incredible stupidity. So we're out of balance. You don't have the responsibility there. So now you're starting to see it come around. I mean, the, the, the censorship of um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that's a great example. They're saying there are things that are out of bounds now. Right. And so um, so you're seeing a cultural assertion of responsibility to counterbalance the technological assertion of democracy that we've been experiencing the last 10 years. It's really interesting. One thing I thought about before you is because you just because of living in the Northwest, too, but I kind of see that spirit of Antifa being a merging of radicalism and the technology thing you're talking about. You, you were talking about before i kind of see that kind of spirit as like that's where the that's the modern version of radicalism with its punk rock influence and it's kill you know a lot of ties to the you know people who kind of come from this techno crap culture i guess is i don't know if that's the right word it's, it, I'm not sure it is. I mean, you know, um, the grassroots Antifa stuff that you see in Seattle and Portland, uh, that's actually coming out of those humanities, that humanities culture more than anything else. And, um, and it is very punk rock. It is coming out of punk rock. You know, um, a lot of it in Seattle and Portland comes out of that, the riot girl stuff that was going on in Olympia in the, in the late 90s and early aughts. You know, that's a very influent, that's a strong influence up here. And a lot of the people who picked up from that, a lot of this is led by, uh, most of this is led by women, 
and most of it is led, a lot of it's led by people of color. So um, it's, I actually, you don't see the techies in the marches, to be honest with you. I, I mean, the way I've been to, like, I don't see the Black Lives Matter marches that I've been to, I haven't seen a lot of the techies. Uh, so in a lot of ways, the tech guys are still more apolitical than that. They're, they're either a, some of them are anti-political. Anyone who's anti-political is really right wing when you finally scratch the surface. But a lot of it's very apolitical. They just don't, you know, you got to remember what it means to write code. It's a very, it's a very um, hyper individualistic thing. In order to write good syntactic code, you're by yourself, you're in front of your computer, you're watching the way in which um, it's not mathematics, it's logic, the way in which the syntax is constructed, it entails a lot of concentration. It entails a lot less concentration than it used to because guys don't write as much code anymore. The modern coding practices is to borrow a lot of code. So you use frameworks and libraries and really they're like, writing code now is like um, Lego blocks, right? You're just putting blocks together. So there's a lot less of the kind of generative original uh, code that was written in the C-sharp days at Microsoft than there is now uh, today with React and uh, uh, Angular. You're, seeing, you're not seeing that same level of kind of original generation code. Also, you know, this is the thing about when you have an industry that's new as software was when I first started in it, there aren't there aren't orthodox practices that you follow and then later on they become orthodox, right? So you have a lot more heterodox thinkers. It was probably more likely that the Antifa people that you're thinking about were present in the industry in 95 than they are today. Um, today, it's a, it's a very, there's a very defined software culture today that didn't exist when I first joined the industry. Right, okay, that makes sense to me. Um, we could talk for a long time, but I'll just wrap this up with a, the last couple questions. Um, kind of talk about <clears throat> something we've alluded to in this conversation, but hardcore's role in modern radicalism. Well, I think it's pretty important. And, and, and I, I, I mean, Biafra and Dave Dichter, I think, deserve a lot of credit for this because both of them, not only in terms of the music that they created, but both of those guys did a lot of spoken word stuff and they did a lot of connecting of people to people. Um, and the, you know, the, 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 we were the three minute left. So if you don't have, if you're not willing to borrow $35,000 from the government and then spend the next 20 years of your life paying it back the way that I did to go to graduate school and study history, you can get, you can get a burst of, you can get a burst of political insight through a song right that's how i started that's what the clash was for me right i didn't know anything about politics actually it probably started earlier than that it probably started with marvin gay probably started with you know the ecology song and and um oh, uh what's going on right like but uh i was a product of the three minute left and so that in a country as conservative, in a country not as native, one thing is the United States is not a natively conservative country. Rich men who want everybody to think it's a conservative country pimp that bullshit because they don't want a genuine populist uprising against corporate power uh, and corporate control. There's nothing wrong with 
corporations intrinsically. There's a lot wrong with the way in which corporations exercise an overweening and predominant force in American culture. The men that pimp the idea that it's a conservative country are wrong. Um, Americans generally have reservoirs of good will and decency for most people. And you certainly saw that in the hardcore days, right? Like one of the great things about getting in that van and traveling around the country was how many kind people you met. Now, people who, here, you could sleep in my bed tonight. No, I don't, no, that's okay, right? Like that's literally what you would encounter. And that's still there, that's all over the country. Uh, so people aren't, the country is not conservative, but the country has institutionalized power in such a way that it delimits the ability of populism and left-wing populism to make to hold real political power. The country's institutions neuter a left wing. So we don't have a left wing in America like you do in Germany or France or Italy. You know, there, there's, there is no left wing in American power today, which means that the left wing has found its voice in culture as the only means of expressing itself and the only means of manifesting its power. And that's why you see periodically the, the right take a run at trying to shut it down. You know, they'll be like, oh, Hollywood is so left wing. It, it actually kind of is. And part of it is because it's actually expressing what people in the country want to hear. It, otherwise, it wouldn't be in business. And it is left wing. It is, I want health care. I want good schools. I want, you know, I want kind and decent treatment of immigrants. That's true. That's there. But it's not, it's, it's, it doesn't find expression in the actual levers of power, so it finds its expression in culture. And hardcore was a very radical voice. In the 80s, it was the most radical voice in the culture, because the 80s was quite a period of lockdown, just like Trumpism was. And so we were a fairly radical voice at the time, because at the time, that was one of the times when left wing had no institutional power whatsoever. And so we were a big expression of that. And we carried that tradition forward. And it's been picked up by people like the Riot Girls, who then become part of the Antifa that you see today in the Black Lives Matter movement. So we've been, we've been keep, we were part of that continuum. But that's what's, that's what's going on. The left wing expresses itself culturally because it cannot express itself politically. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, that makes total sense. Um, lastly, like I said, I wish that we could talk much longer, but um, there was something that like um, came up that gaming has surpassed music in terms of popularity with, with younger people. And uh, I guess my question is, what do you see as the future of music is especially to people like us where music was so important, especially with its message and all that? Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm in another band now called Redshift, and it's it's a bit retro. We're playing mostly surf, kind of surf rock. It's really, for me, it's a personal adventure to to play guitar more than anything else. And I'm I'm playing with a couple of guys who are really really good players, so they force me to be a to be a, a musician beyond my ability. Uh, if I were 18 right now, if I were if I were the age of my daughter, she's 20. I probably would be um, doing stuff with computers because 
you you can do so much musically with computers today that is truly mind bending. You know, um, oh, I really like a lot of minimalism. I was listening last night to Katie Kate. She's a female rapper here in Seattle, but it isn't just that she's a rapper. She her whole approach is very spare. It's drums and machines. And it's just, it's great. It's just great. Um, there's another band from Seattle. Uh, well, they're now in LA called Chaos Chaos. Again, female led. They do the same thing. It's, it's drums and machines. It's kind of awesome. Uh, I, I don't do it because it's not where my muse developed. But if I, had, if I were starting now, that's probably where I'd be starting. You know, other people are saying, you know, it, it's funny in the history of rock and roll, it's the history of exploring aesthetic principles. And uh, with hardcore, there were two aesthetic principles, speed and noise. So we were the guys that brought to that blues based structure of rock music, speed and noise. And um, after us, I don't know what other aesthetic principles could be explored, right? Because you had harmony and melody were explored by previous generations. Uh, you had polyrhythms explored by pre previous generations. By the time we get to the end of hardcore in 85 or 86, it's not clear to me what aesthetic principles can be mined by musicians that haven't already been explored. But what you do get in the 90s and the aughts is composition. So you get bands like Arcade Fire where they, they put, what, 13, 14 musicians on a, on a stage? And they're, it's, it's kind of god-awful prog rock. I can't say that I care for it. But what I realized that they were doing was all the, all the kind of intrinsic aesthetic principles of music had been explored already. So what they were exploring was the way of composing, putting them together. Again, the building block stuff, right? So in the, in the revolutionary moment, you're exploring singular principles of aesthetics. But once that revolutionary moment is passed, subsequent generations just build upon what has been built. And that's what you see going on in rock today. They're just, it's, um, it's Lego blocks approach to putting music together, which is, which is great. I'm not putting it down. There's, there's a lot of fantastic young bands and that's probably, I would be a Lego blocks guy right now too, right? If I were starting now, I mean, I, I come from a different generation. So my, my ear is attuned to different things, but I'd be working with computers. It, it might be interesting to see whether we reach another revolutionary moment down the, down the line that I'm, I'm not, familiar with. I mean, there's always the possibility of revolutionary expressions aesthetically because somebody will see something nobody else sees. Does it become human computer interfaces where the music's pumped directly into your brain? <laughs> I don't know. It's possible, right? I mean, I, one thing is people will always innovate and young people will always find an expression in music that had not been found by the previous generation and go at it. Let's hear it. Come on, bring it on. I want to hear it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I guess we'll leave it at that. Um, Vic, you continue to do great stuff. I'm very impressed with your path and um, your, continue, your continued uh, passion is uh, really, uh, really great. And um, may, it can, you continue to uh, be a relevant character, which is not easy to do. So way to go. Uh, so thank you, Vic, for all your amazing input. Big thank you to everybody listening. Please follow us and see you next time on the next thought-provoking episode of the American Hardcore Podcast. 
The American Hardcore Podcast is a production of the Blush Media Network. For further information, email blushmedianetwork at gmail.com. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks.